politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Bottoms up and welcome back to Pottoms Up Podcast. This is Blotto, and I know it's been a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months, since we had our reunion show with Fred and Nobbs, and much, much, much has transpired in these last several weeks. An incredible amount has transpired, far more than I could cover this evening, and I apologize if there's big issues out there that I'm just not going to be able to get to lay down my opinion on what those events mean to you and I and the rest of the United States and the rest of the world. The last several weeks have just been absolutely um, epic in proportion to the political landscape, the social landscape, and to peoples in America, as well as anything that happens in America translates to what happens uh, in the rest of the world in large part. Um, but I do want to get to a few topics, but first I've got to get to a beer. This evening I have uh, Rockford Brewing, which I don't know that Pottoms Up, uh, even with the crew, had ever done a Rockford Brewing beer. They're located sort of northeast of Grand Rapids, Michigan, so definitely a west side uh, brewery. This particular offering is called Something Hoppy. Uh, it is an IPA. Uh, they list it as a West Coast IPA. Inspired by local music artists and venues, Something Hoppy IPA, the champion of the local scene. And they show a bunch of aliens playing pinball on the can for whatever that's worth. Couldn't find an IBU listing on it. They don't list it. Untapped didn't have it. It is 6.6% ABV. So, you know, that's uh, pretty good, especially since I've already uh, been partaking uh, this evening in various forms. I expect it to go down very nicely. So let's open it up and give it a pour. My partaking has been a different beer, a cucumber mint vodka, and I also made myself a pineapple coconut cocktail earlier this evening that uh, Pop-Tart and I decided to start our day drinking with. Anyway, uh, the beer is, it's hazy, it's got particles. It's different than what I would call a West Coast. To me, it looks a lot more New England. A lot of floaties, very um, pale in color. Um, so let me give a taste here. Uh, a lot of grapefruit, citrus hoppy. Um, yeah, I'm just not sure why I would call this a West Coast IPA. Certainly an IPA, certainly hoppy. Got the uh, the glands already sort of secreting in the back of the throat here because uh, of the sourness uh, and the hoppiness and the bitterness. But it's going to be refreshing, and maybe I'll, I'll pass my final judgment here at the end of the podcast. Uh, b- before I, I get into some of the big topics that have occurred in the last month or, or so, that being several mass shootings, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and the January 6th uh, hearings that I think started, must have started, um, I think they did, immediately after the 100th episode of Pot of Up. You, you know, I wanna, I'll touch on each one of those. 
um, the, the hearing, the last public hearing that's been scheduled is going on just over yonder there on the TV, which I have muted, and I have it recorded, so I will catch up with this evening's just incredible display of the facts and the realities that the American people really need to digest completely of Donald Trump wanting to overthrow this election and the complete plan that he had in mind as flawed as it was uh, to do just that. So I don't really have much more to say about the January 6th hearings. I mean, if you stay tuned, you know, they speak for themselves. The committee's done an absolutely marvelous job of laying out what I just said in terms of the plan that was. And uh, today they're kind of wrapping it up with what was going through Trump's head during the three hours of the riots as he really wanted that mob to invade the Capitol and stop the count and do whatever they needed to do to get Pence to ignore the legitimate and legal electors. Like, like so many others, you know, we see these hearings and all up to the DOJ at this point in time. And, um, you know, we're waiting, right? We, we, are, we are waiting to see what the DOJ is going to do. Politics be damned. I mean, that's just the way that it has to be. I didn't want to talk too much about January 6th, but there was a nugget today that came out regarding the politics of the January 6th committee, and it was just astounding to me. So trying to keep things current and not delve back into too much recent history. But Kevin McCarthy, I guess, was on Fox last night, and basically when asked why he didn't pursue putting more Republicans on the committee, he admitted that he wanted to keep it political, that by not putting more Republicans on the committee, then they would go out and say that it was illegitimate and political in nature. And it's astounding to me that his constituents don't really see through that. You don't even have to really see through it. Just how obvious it is that he's making it political. He's trying to make it illegitimate. Not that it is, but he's admitting to the Republican Party that this was an attempt to make it appear legitimate and political. And I, I just don't understand how anyone cannot see that and then fully question that political party as being a legitimate political party. I mean, maybe it's a small quote. Maybe, maybe I'm making too much out of it, but I don't think so. A full-on testimony and admission of you don't want the truth to come out. And so you're going to play politics with this. That's an, essentially what he said. Okay, but I did digress because I didn't want to talk too much about uh, January 6th. And maybe I'll have more to talk about after I review this hearing. And maybe the next podcast will have more on how it wrapped up. And maybe by then we'll have some indictments. Who, who knows? There does seem to be a good thing that's coming out of uh, these hearings. And that is... There are some bills being put forward right now that do change the role of the vice president in the count, and it makes it um, a formality and no longer gives the vice president any kind of wiggle room at all to question the legitimacy of certain electors. And uh, if Congress can pass this, then 
you know, that's that's at least something that comes out of the January 6th committee. Then at least this congressional hearing will bear some fruits in terms of new laws to make a difference versus so many congressional hearings that just don't really do anything of the sort. They just are hearings for the sole purpose for people to pontificate. Um, but again, I will say where I wanted to start today was something struck me the other day on the news. And uh, I, I believe this is a byproduct of Trumpism. But may, maybe it started earlier. There was a, a, a teaser going into commercial. It m- might have been MSNBC. And the talking head says, you know, wildfires are raging in Texas due to the incredible uh, temperatures and heat wave that's going across the country right now. When we return, we'll talk about what is what is Biden doing about it. And it just really struck me. It really, really struck a chord. Why is Joe Biden responsible for addressing wildfire, wildfires in Texas? I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying that the federal government doesn't have a place in helping out with whatever disaster or whatever problems that we have in America. But somehow along the way, and I think it. I, I think it started with Trump. I, it, I almost kind of feel like it started with his comment that said, I alone can fix it. And his supporters bought into that. And and so now, whatever our problems or ills are within America, somehow or another, we are attaching the blame and very little credit, if it's a positive thing, to the president. And it's ridiculous to continue to move forward with this. I mean, I, I've said all along, and I never gave Trump any credit whatsoever on the economy, good or bad, that he was the president during. I don't blame Biden for gas prices. I mean, even if you want to make some dotted line connections to some of the things that the administration has done, right, whether it's been releasing oil reserves or allowing companies to sell their oil reserves or having conversations with the Saudis or, you know, just verbally dogging fossil fuels as you want to push for cleaner energy. All of those things combined are barely going to move the needle on what we're paying at the gas pump. They, they just almost have nil effect on the price of gasoline, the cost of refinering, the price per barrel. It, it's ludicrous that now all of a sudden we have a meth problem in the United States. So now we're going to blame the president. And what is he doing? Wildfires in Texas, gun violence. All of a sudden, you know, what is the president doing about, you know, the gang violence and, you know, the gun violence in Chicago? It, 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 the list goes on and on and on because we have a lot of problems in this country. And now all of a sudden, we just want to point our finger at the president. And this was MSNBC who did this. So this was just another example of mainstream media. Now, Fox does it all day long because Biden's president. But this was just mainstream media doing it. And, you know, as I flip through my Facebook feed, I see all kinds of articles about troubles and issues and problems that the United States has. And so many of them have Biden's picture in the lead caption. And it's just, and it's really ludicrous to think that the president can do anything at all about these problems, especially in in any significant impact. I mean, I'm not saying that that the federal government and the executive branch can't do some things, but 
They're long-term, they're low-impact, there's a bureaucracy that happens behind them that knows how to make the sausage, so to speak, and pass laws or work within the structure that takes care of these problems, you know, wildfires and drug overdoses and, you know, even immigration to a certain extent. And maybe it's not going to be with Biden. Maybe it's going to be with the next president. Maybe it's going to be in, going to, it's going to take a long time. But somehow or another, we have to get away from just always blaming the president. And then if you're in favor of that president, trying to take credit for everything that happens in the United States or abroad, if it's uh, uh, regarding foreign affairs. Now, I've largely left foreign affairs out of it because I've always said, and I said this during Trump administration as well, that it's, you know, foreign policy is where the president does have the most authority and power. But domestic issues, at the end of the day, they just don't really have that much to do with domestic issues. You know, we're, we're a, 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 a huge, complex, 50-state, multi-level of bureaucracy, you know, country. And, and, and many of, the, that, of that bureaucracy is put in place to help solve problems. It's not just bureaucracy for the sake of bureaucracy. There's a lot of that, no, no question about it. But there's a lot that is put in place, whether it's municipality level, county, state, and then finally up to the federal government that is put into place to, to tackle these. And I'm just, I'm just so tired, so, so tired of always either having trying to defend Biden or, or explain to people that Biden has nothing to do with this. And what it really does is it really hurts America in the long run because it takes away accountability. It takes away the spotlight on those that are supposed to be fixing the problems, especially where it seems to com- completely exonerate the federal legislation branch, Congress, from having from them having to do anything, and then to a certain extent, your state governments, right? When 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 I start arguing with Trumpsters about how awful Republican red states are run, you know they they don't see it that way. They look at it as I'm going to blame the Biden administration, and 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 so by not putting the blame and the accountability down to the level that really makes things happen gives them a pass. It's it's it it really is just something that's just absolutely grinding me um, to no end, and I see it over and over and over again. I I don't know what else to say about it. Um, Uvalde. And what happened to Uvalde, the tragedy is, is just so sickening. Um, it, it still um, affects me emotionally to even think about it. And obviously so much has been talked about and it's almost old news. But I will add just one thing to this. And, and it's basically, I think, the only take that matters regarding Uvalde. Um, you know, we, we don't victim blame. We, we don't um, point the finger at you know, teachers, administrators, uh, legislators that fail to act, uh, FBI agents and red flag laws and all of that stuff. This, this tragedy, basically, the extent of the, of the tragedy basically comes down, in my mind, to one thing, and that is the weapon. When you look at the video and what we have learned about the Uvalde police response, there is only one answer. And they were afraid of that weapon. If they would have known that he had nothing more than a pistol, they would have charged in there. There's a, a video and there's you know, of the hallway, but there's another video from another camera that they're not showing any longer where 
when he first shoots at those three officers that approach the door and uh, he's rifling through the drywall. I guess it's like above their heads and there's just, you know, things flying all over the place. That doesn't happen with a pistol. That happens with a high velocity rifle. And then that's when they retreated. And basically every cop in that situation said, I'm not going in there. And they could have saved lives as they would have. And I'm not even really sure how much I want to blame the police. And, and the reason I say that, I mean, their job is to go in there. That's their job. But they were fearing for their lives. And this time they were truly feeling fearing for their lives. This wasn't the one where the guy, you know, they, they pull over for a, a parking, uh, I'm sorry, they pull over for a traffic violation. And then he flees from the car with his cell phone in hand, and they shoot him in the back thinking it was a gun. Um, and then they say, well, they were fearing for their lives. Uh, you, you know, cops sure fear for their lives a lot in America. I, and, and the reason they do is because of the proliferation of guns. Cops in other countries, other developed countries, they don't have the same fear of walking up to a motorist and asking for their ID because they're relatively positive that that motorist doesn't have a handgun in his glove box or in his console. You know, that It's not a fear that they live with, but in America they do. But in this particular situation with Uvalde, what it really comes down to was they were afraid of that weapon. And so when you hear that guns don't kill, people kill, that's true, but guns do kill at different levels. And, you know, your nine millimeter is not as deadly as your AR. And I don't know enough about weapons to bring you all the facts, but I do know enough that velocity matters a lot. Velocity is what really does the most damage. And uh, then there's the design of the weapon that makes it very easy to fire a lot of rounds accurately. Um, so people don't want to address that in this issue, in my, in, in my opinion. That's the only way that I look at the Uvalde incident. You know, I, 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 if I was a cop in that situation and I didn't do anything, I, I don't know how these guys are able to live with themselves um, knowing that their dereliction of duty caused the death of innocent children. Um, at the same time, they didn't want to face that weapon. And like I said, I, I, I blame them, but it's difficult to blame them, I guess. You know, may, maybe at some point in time, people will kind of realize that. The mayor of Highland Park in Chicago on the July 4th shooting has come out basically and said, I think with uh, alongside her police chief, that there were plenty of good guys with guns there. And, you know, no, nobody shot that, that shooter before he was able to kill several people and wound many, many others. It is the weapon and the police are fearful of anyone having that weapon. And then there's this case recently of the mass killing and shooting in an Indianapolis Mall. And I, I find it just sort of, I don't know, sad, funny, the way that the radical right-wing extremists are, are, are uh, treating this incident because there was an armed civilian who took down the shooter uh, as he was carrying. And I don't recall if it was concealed carry or open carry. And that's all well and good to a certain extent. But there's nothing to celebrate about this. You know, the right wing is trying to make it seem like, Yahoo, see, we told you more armed people is going to help us. And I've been I've been firing back, no pun intended, at, at these folks saying, what, what are you celebrating? Three innocent people lost their lives. Another guy lost his life who was the shooter. 
you know, not much sympathy there, but the the whole the whole situation is tragic. There's a guy who probably never went to the mall that day thinking that he's going to have to kill another human being and he ended up doing that. Maybe he's well adjusted um that that doesn't phase him and you know, he he believes what he did was right, but I don't think people want to go out into the street and kill other human beings even if it's justifiable. I could be wrong about that. I, I could be way wrong about that, but but I don't think that's the way that most people act. And and so in my in my conversations with people regarding that incident, they're like, well, we're celebrating because it could have been much worse. That it could have been, you know, twelve or fifteen people dead if this guy hadn't acted or worse or something like that. The other thing, and I don't know this for a fact, the indie shooter, I don't think he was armed with an AR. I think he owned one. I've seen some pictures, but I don't think that's what he was shooting people up with. Maybe he was, and then again, the shooter, the 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 guy who neutralized him. Like I said, I'm not taking away anything that he did, and it was brave. But I just can't celebrate what he did. I I wouldn't really celebrate the cops for doing that, right? Because it was too late. You know, three people died, and there's 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 nothing that we can celebrate here. And, and what I was going to say earlier was they're saying it could have been worse. So let's celebrate the idea of the second amendment and this guy carrying around well i guess we should be happy that in uvalde it wasn't 25 students that in buffalo it wasn't 30 grocery shoppers i mean if if under that logic well it could have been worse and that's why we're going to celebrate what happened you know it just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense to me and and basically what the radical right-wing extremists are doing by trying to lift this guy on a pedestal is they're really trying to co-opt this incident to say more people need to own guns we need more wild west kind of activity in our streets that's really what they're trying to say and of course that is you know completely ridiculous i kind of have to a certain extent evolved my position on gun ownership and in previous podcasts i've talked about how i think gun culture has to change and that change really has to come from the people to stigmatize gun ownership i don't think that there's laws that we can put in place given the number of guns that we already have in america that are going to reduce gun violence in any significant way. And I'm not talking about mass shootings, the 10 to 30,000 gun violence deaths that occur every year in this country. And the only way we're going to reduce that is through a concerted effort to have less guns, you know, in the hands of people that shouldn't have them. But the problem with that is you don't know who shouldn't have them until it's too late. So in my arguments with folks on Uvalde or Buffalo or July 4th shooting is up until the time that guy started firing on innocence, the radical right-wing extremists wanted each one of those perpetrators to own a gun. And they wanted the guy to own as many guns as he possibly could, the most powerful guns that he possibly could, and to even flaunt them publicly as much as he possibly could within the law. That's what the right wing wants. And so then they start shouting about, you know, red flag laws were missed and his mental illness was missed. And and, and in each one of those cases, there's not a shred of evidence 
that would have prohibited him and given the authority to law enforcement for those shooters, like so many others, to not own that gun. So the bottom line is the right wants people to own guns. And then when they go and shoot up innocent people, then they say that guy shouldn't have had a gun. But up until he pulls the trigger on an innocent person, they want that person to have a gun. And that's what's wrong with the gun culture in America. So if you're not discouraging gun ownership, then you are part of the problem. That's where my position has evolved. You must discourage gun ownership. You must start the stigmatization now. And if you're not, then you want people to own more guns. And when you have more people owning guns, then you have the propensity, just in sheer numbers, of more people doing bad things with those guns. They may have not been bad people before. The Las Vegas shooter, he had no criminal record. He purchased all his guns legally. And so the radical right wing, they wanted him to own all those weapons. There's no question about that. In fact, the radical right wing extremists I have argued with don't argue with me on that point. They say, yes, we did want that guy to own those guns up until it's too late. You know, this, this, this idea of the good guy versus the ga- bad guy with the gun is, is, is a fallacy. You know, the idea that criminals will have the guns and good people won't have the guns if we pass laws. They're not criminals until they use the guns in a criminal way. You know, when, when the, the right wing says, well, then criminals will have all the guns. Are they talking about Uvalde and Buffalo and Indy and July 4th and Las Vegas shooters as those guys having the guns? Because they weren't criminals prior. Not in any, not in any sense that would have prohibited them from getting guns. So what do they mean by the criminal? We know what they mean. In their mind, the criminal with the gun is the black guy in the ghetto who may have spent some time in juvie or maybe you know, has a felony rap and got the gun on a straw per, on a straw man purchase or, you know, some other method. And that, in their world, is the only criminals that have the guns. When it comes right down to it, when I hear that statement of only the criminals will have the guns, my racist radar goes right up. Anyway, beer's okay. I'll also kind of just mention a little bit about Roe versus Wade and I think what people are missing in this conversation is what was lost. And it wasn't just the loss of reproductive rights for women. And I had this conversation um, with a coworker who is very Catholic. I wouldn't necessarily say radical right-wing extremists, but certainly right-wing extremists or radical right-wing. Well, you know, we'll go with two out of the three. Um, but we have some good conversations. We, we, we actually can have conversation and uh, oftentimes either just agree to disagree or find some middle ground. He's a coworker. And I explained to him that the ruling that came down had nothing at all to do with religion. It had nothing at all to do with when life begins or what is considered personhood or conception or late term or first term. It had nothing at all to do with any of those things that one might believe. The ruling came down that said, you no longer have the federal government's protection, the constitutional protection for your right to privacy. And when you throw that out there to the radical right-wing extremists, 
that think that the governments should absolutely stay out of their business. And when you tell them you've just lost your federally protected right to privacy, they are almost stunned by that revelation. And I, I don't I don't I don't know like how they don't realize this because they're the first ones regarding the reversal of Roe to say, well, this just pushed it down to states. This was not making abortion illegal. Now, we all know what it means for a lot of states. Like, that's not a question, right? So it's, it's yeah, we know progressives are smart. We know that it doesn't make abortion illegal on a federal level, but we know what it means for 26 states or whatever the number is going to be. When you push it down to the states, basically what it was saying was it was wrongly decided because it doesn't fall under any of the rights enumerated in the Constitution. And what I'm not a constitutional expert, right? But there is the Ninth Amendment, which is part of the Bill of Rights. And the Ninth Amendment basically talks about how there are rights that people have that are not enumerated or specifically called out within the Constitution. So the founders weren't trying to make an all-encompassing document, and their Bill of Rights wasn't supposed to be, you know, oh, we didn't miss anything. This is all you get. They included the Ninth Amendment in there to say there are certain rights that the people have, okay, and that have to be have to continue to be supported, whether they're enumerated in the Constitution or not. Now, the only way that they can be protected is still by the government, right? The people can't protect their own rights. You still need the government to protect it. And I'm sure the founders understood that. And one of those rights has always been that that have kind of fallen under the non-enumerated rights have been the right to privacy. Um, I believe that there's been maybe some cases on the right to vote have fallen under the Ninth Amendment. Um, in certain cases. But that's what has now been wiped away by this court. And especially when you read Thomas's opinion, his secondary opinion, that says all the other rights that we have um, protected people with that fall under the right to privacy should all be relooked, right? The right to con- uh, contraception, the, the right to marry whom you want. There, there's probably others. Those are th- those rights have always fallen under the right to privacy. And now, if your state decides that, no, you don't have that right, the federal government is not going to help you out. And what's interesting about this is how the states, some of the states, including, I think it was Michigan and maybe Georgia, are saying that that right to privacy still exists under their own state constitutions and Therefore, that's why you can't outlaw uh, abortion. It's going to be really, really messy over the next decade or whatever whatever it is, as all of these things kind of sort themselves out. But next next time you're having a conversation with somebody, you know, from the right or some pro-lifer, say, hey, you know, whatever you might think about abortion, you, you, Mr. Pro-Lifer, have just lost your right to privacy. The protection of the federal government is no longer there for you on your right to privacy. And they, they may not think that that's a big deal, but it really is a big deal. Well, that's all I got today. It's a short podcast. Gets me back in the chair, back in the studio, back in front of the microphone, back in front of a beer. Although there's plenty of that. Uh, for myself. I'm sure there's much more that I could go on about given all of the things that have happened, like I said, transpired in the last couple of weeks, but those thoughts were weighing heavy on my mind and I just had to get them off my chest. So uh, I'm going to clock out and next time I'm on, I'm, 
I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we'll be hearing some good news out of the, uh, the DOJ. I think that's what we're all looking and hoping for. I'll even take good news out of the Steve Bannon trial that is going to wrap up this week. If the jury doesn't find him guilty, I, I'll have to say the fix was in. Like, I just, I, I, I can't imagine that they won't find him guilty. Is Steve Bannon going, going away for, for two years? Yeah, you know, that, that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> anyway, enjoy your own beverages, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Drink up, listen up, bottoms up. Politics, some culture and craft beer. Politics, and that is why you're here. Politics.